Welcome to After Hours, an interview podcast series from Lady. I am Laura McClaus-Helms, a fashion and cultural historian. At Lady, we are interested in leading intentional lives surrounded by beauty. This podcast series developed out of conversations amongst ourselves about how best to do that. I approached a number of cultural creatives across many fields to talk to them about their careers and the decisions they made over the years in order to mold their ideal lives. Their desires and paths are diverse, yet each conversation was ripe with inspiration. Today's interview is with the fashion designer Norma Kamali. Her career in fashion is quite remarkable. In an industry where brands are brought up by conglomerates or heavily influenced by investors, Kamali is still sole owner of her company. She opened her first store with her then-husband on East 53rd Street in 1968, importing clothes from London, but soon began designing and producing her own line. Following her divorce in the mid-70s, she relaunched her company in 1978 as OMO Norma Kamali, OMO, which stands for On My Own. Norma is truly a woman's designer, completely engaged with designing clothes that make women feel beautiful, yet also work with how they live. As an active, busy career woman, her designs evolved as solutions for the missing links in her own wardrobe. At the same time that she has been creating iconic garments that are both comfortable and chic, Kamali has also been on the forefront of tech and fashion. We discussed her career, the ups and downs of life and fashion, and her invigorating zest for life in the East 56th Street building that houses her store, showroom, offices, atelier, and photo studio. On our website, ladyworld.tv, I have put together a slideshow of many photographs of her wonderful designs. I hope you enjoy this conversation with the eternally youthful and powerful businesswoman, Norma Kamali. Thank you so much Thank for you. sitting down to meet with me. I've always been intrigued by your career because I feel like it's unlike anyone else I can think of in fashion, that you've somehow, you know, you've managed to have your company for 50 years without any outside investment, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And most designers I've reached on research and written books on, that's not been the case, mm. you know, and they've really often I've watched their, like, you know, when I've worked on research their careers, it's been like 10 or 15 years of magic, right, of, of being hot, but then they've, in that time they've made bad business decisions and then it all explodes and then it's over. Yeah. How do you think that you were able to hmm. make the right... Well, you know, it's, it's a hard question because I never had a master plan. The only master plan I had was understanding my personality and what I wanted from my life. And I created, creativity is so important to me and the freedom to be creative is super important. So how could I achieve that? And I understood that I would have to make it work myself. Um, but in doing that, it meant that I also had to figure out how to pay the bills, how to be a manager, how to be the ultimate person that's responsible for every mistake and every good thing that happens. So the process is continuous. It's, I'm still in the process. So through the years, I sort of invented myself as needed to sustain being relevant and sustain a creative life. And it's a process of mistakes and recoveries and learning and 
exploring new opportunities and you're in a constant state of exploration, fear, excitement, um, because if everything feels zen, you're, you may not be in the right place to be in business. There has to be an energy that's constantly moving. It can be about zen, it could be about anything, it could be any topic, but it has to be um, a process of excitement, stimulation, newness, but not just for the sake of being new, but for being inventive or explorative. And so it certainly is not easy, and I would never have suspected that this would have happened this way. Um, but it has, and it mainly is because I am so driven to not have people tell me what I can't do that that sustains my excitement to keep going. And did you always know you wanted to be a fashion designer? I know you studied fashion illustration, mm -hmm. but before that, were you already making clothes or? No, I really... Um, wanted to be a painter more than anything. I studied anatomy, um, life drawing was a big part of what I did every day. So being a painter, I knew that I could use that skill set. <clears throat> and then, well, my mother was just learn how to type so that you can get a job. And I thought, I am not learning how to type and I don't want that kind of a job. I did, I was lucky enough to get scholarships so that I could do painting or um, go to FIT. So I studied illustration at FIT and at the time it was madman time. Everybody was dressed with bras and cinched waists and the whole thing and I could not be more out of sync with that look and that sort of matching hat, gloves, the whole thing and trust me, girls in FIT dress that way to school. And people wearing garter belts and stockings. I mean, it was just a, like antiquity completely. I never felt connected to that. I hated fashion. I hated the way everybody was dressed. I was always sort of like off, you know. And then when the 60s came and I decided that I, I wasn't going to find anything in fashion I wanted and I got a job, job at an airlines just so I could travel, that's when I fell into London and saw this is who I am. I saw the beginnings of this new thing that was happening and I fit perfectly with it. And so that's when fashion seems like a creative endeavor, not sort of like the brutal kind of look that I just really was not connecting with. And then you started like bringing the clothes back from yeah. London and selling them. Yeah. Was it just because there was nothing like that available here? Oh, nothing like it. First of all, skirts were below the knee and you wore stockings and you wore flesh color stockings. Um, and when I started going to London, skirts were up here, and they were getting shorter and shorter every, I went every weekend, and every weekend they'd get shorter and shorter, and I would come back wearing these dresses 
with individual eyelashes and just looking like nobody seen anything like this. And cars would screech to a halt when I crossed the street, and they would say horrible things, like I was a prostitute or whatever because I was showing my legs. And in London, that what the energy was, more of it, and more and more and more. There was an excitement about it. But my friends wanted it, and so I would bring back clothes for them. And, um, and then I was carrying garment bags, those big cloth garment bags, and I would roll up all of the dresses and put rubber bands around them so that I could fit a whole bunch. And I'd literally walk through customs with this like <laughs> body, and nobody ever said anything to me. And I just thought it was amazing that I could walk through with hundreds of pieces yeah. of clothing and nobody would say a word. And then finally, I thought, this, this is, I, I think I have a business here. I should really make it real. Did it ever scare you going, you were like 20 years old. Did it ever, mm. were you afraid to start your own business that young? Well, I, I didn't start at 20. I was like, I, I started in 1967 and um, I was born in 45. So I was a little older. And by 24, I was making clothes yeah. and I was in it. I was, in my mind, I was much smarter than I am now. I knew everything. Mm -hmm. And I could tell you anything you needed to know. I was the smartest person, I thought, in the whole world. And it, wasn't, it was only time that taught me how much I didn't know. Mm -hmm. And so at this age, I realize I know very little. Um, but what I do know because of age and experience is I'm sure of. But when you're younger and you have enthusiasm and passion for something, there's sort of a fearless quality. Um, anyway, for my generation, it's a little bit more frightening now, and it's mm -hmm. not as easy. But I wasn't afraid of anything. I just was going to do it and show everybody that I could. I mean, the descriptions of that original boutique sound incredible, that you sort of changed the, the wall coverings yeah, to match everything. The, yeah. the, the collections. Yeah. And that sort of creativity, I think, is really rare now. I think just probably because it costs so much to even get a space now. Yeah. Um, yeah, so my rent was $285 a month. But I was making $80 a month, and $80 a week at the airline. So it, it was all relative. Mm -hmm. But the truth is, it was a little basement shop, <clears throat> very small. Um, but I was able to start something there, and um, and the, the atmosphere was more conducive to people being receptive mm -hmm. to new things. Today, there's so much competition. There's global competition. Um, it's, a, it's a much harsher time, and people are more judgmental. Um, and the younger population are more protected by their families. So there's less of a, a, a chance for someone to, to have sort of the 
thought they can do anything because they are protected. So there's a little, there's a fear factor that goes in. When you need to be protected, that means you should be afraid. My, at my early beginning, I didn't feel I needed protection or I should be afraid of anything. I, I, there was no thought of that. My mother just sort of threw me out there, like, get a job and get out of the house. <laughs> it was like, okay. Bye bye, and it, and that was super helpful for yeah. me then. But now it is so much harder. But there is the chance that you can have a presence either through social media, or you can have a website, or you can have some way to reach people, and you can reach people around the world. So there's another way to do it. Do you think that that I guess that lack of fear also helped you later in the 70s after your marriage broke up and your business mm -hmm. partnership with your ex-husband. Did that help you like, actually start your own company? Well, I was older and wiser then, so that was easily 10 years okay. later. And um, it was more about self-esteem and my personal integrity. Um, we grew, we were in business together, but we got married at 19, so by the time you're 29, we were unrecognizable to each other. And I think the more people got to know me as a designer, the more intimidated he was that I may not need him or something like that. So his own, he created his own wish. To, or his fear, mm -hmm. um, and so he kept creating situations that might um, push us apart, and I think it was totally out of his fear that I might walk away and not need him, rather than making himself valuable mm -hmm. to, the, to the partnership we had. And, I, and there was a point where Sometimes people do things to humiliate, and they, they're just doing it out of their own fear. And there was so much of that that I finally had to just say, for my own integrity, I had to leave everything I loved, including my identity as a designer in my sample room and in the world I'd created in our partnership. And it was frightening because I didn't know how I would fund it. I didn't know anything about business. I had no idea what would happen next. But if I stayed, I would lose my soul, and that wasn't going to be a good thing for me to do. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like an incredibly unhealthy situation. Yeah. And it and it was, and it and and so you have to you have to survive, your, 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 who you are has to survive to be able to do anything. I just saw my self-esteem getting challenged day after day, um, and it, it just was, you know, unacceptable. And, but I was totally frightened because, and, and, and sort of, sobbing in a way in my heart because I was leaving this new identity that I'd created for myself behind. I was leaving the, 
the, the, the dream that I had, that I'd created to be a designer and to have a creative day, day after day. And I didn't know if I would have that again. Um, I wasn't afraid that I couldn't get a job because I'm, I'm a worker and I work hard and I could be good at anything, but I was afraid that I wouldn't be able to continue what I loved. Did you have mentors you could talk to about how to set up a business, how to no. do any of this? No. Mentors, no. I, I mean, at that point, later on, I, I started to understand the value of asking people I respected questions and for guidance, but at the time I was just so frightened about survival and I understood that I couldn't do any of this without money, so I asked everybody I knew if they would lend me money. And I was shocked, actually, that people were lending me money and that they had so much faith in me. And then I started to question, do I have the same faith in myself? Am I going to be able to do this? I'm doing it with other people's money. I have such a sense of responsibility to pay them back. And how will I pay them back? And I remember many sleepless nights worrying about Am I, am I capable of running a business? I don't know how to run a business. I didn't, you know, I, I just, it was something that would, I'd have to learn as I, as I kind of developed it. And there was just something, the generosity of so many people to really give me substantial amounts of money to, to open a business on my own was just so overwhelming that I think that was the inspiration to prove I could do it and not to let anybody down. I just was, uh, to me, the thought of letting these people down was worse than my own fears about could I do this. Mm -hmm. So I, and I paid everybody back and I was just, you know, I'm still indebted and grateful to those people, and I never stop thanking them because I can't imagine any other path. I mean, that's that's so wonderful to have that sort of to have that sort of people put so much faith in you. It really does and you don't know. I mean, I had no idea. <coughs> I I wasn't sure if people knew I even existed because, you know. Like you said, I've always been comfortable in the background, in the sample room, and other people are out front. I like dressing people to look pretty, so they're out front. I've never been the one that wants to be in front. So I didn't think people really knew that there was a designer, that, you know, that there was somebody. Some people knew, but not the amount of people that... I could imagine knew, and so many more did, and people would contact other people to say, she wants to start a business, let's help her out with this, and so it was just overwhelming and unexpected, but if I didn't make that move, I would have never known that. I would have stayed with the fear that nobody knows me, I'm not good enough to do this, I have to stay in this marriage, I have to, in order to continue, I have to deal with this. And that would have been 
just a horrible mistake. That all seems like it was around this time that you did a lot of things that have become very iconic for your career, I think. Like the sleeping bag coat, mm -hmm. all the body wear, and then a little later, sweatshirt. And mm -hmm. did, I mean, you gained a lot of sort of success, like mm -hmm. press success and monetary success, especially from the sweatshirting. Did, how much of that do you think came out of the fear and was sort of like an impetus to produce better and... Mm, I'm not sure that it came so much from that, but um, it it there was a lot going on at the same time. So <clears throat> I'm interviewing some people now who were, were talking about that time. So the 70s were explosive for fashion. Um, original concepts and designs were created then, not just by me, mm -hmm. but an entire industry. The idea of the fashion designer as a brand or a celebrity started then. Uh, prior to that, there was, you know, the brand idea was really non-existent. It was more um, an industry. There were some designer names like Norman Norell and some of the sort of classical American designers, but it really wasn't until the 70s that the busy, fun, new ideas, clothes you'd never seen before were created. Mm -hmm. And there was... Uh, an overall energy. And so I was in the right place at the right time. My personality fit that completely. Individuality, original design is where I flourish. I'm not the sort of commercial manufacturing success with you know these enormous bazillion dollar company mindsets. So I, I was in the right place at the right time. And I was fortunate to be able to have people ready to accept these ideas. So there may be times when there are original ideas, but they're just not accepted mm -hmm. because the, the time is not ready for that. So the sleeping bag coat, and the high heel sneaker, and the parachutes, and all of that stuff. And I, I made lots of different things that were very original and unique, were accepted so comfortably. I started in the swimwear business then, doing swimsuits that nobody had ever seen before. But And the legs were way, way, way up high. Now, at any other time, nobody would wear that leg. And mm -hmm. since then, there are periods that I would never be able to sell a swimsuit like that. Um, so it, so much of it is, is timing, is synergy, it's the feeling women have about themselves, it's the way the p culture, the yeah. pop culture is sort of tuning into things. I love the sort of, I don't know if there are myths about the creation of this, like the sleeping bag coat. Because I've read several different stories of like how you came to do that. Well, it, it's, it's a true story. Um, so this is the 70s and it's very hippy dippy, you know, kind of time. And so I um, 
love to go camping, and a whole bunch of us would go camping together, and we would go up to the Delaware River mm -hmm. upstate and go canoeing and camping by the river and in the woods, and um, we had tents and everything to make big fires, all of that. We all had our sleeping bag. And, um, and I remember it was early in the, it was probably still May, it was much earlier than we normally would go camping, and it was cool at night, and I had to go to the bathroom, and I was contemplating, oh, I don't really want to get out of my sleeping bag, and, uh, and then I thought, I need to get out of my sleeping bag. But instead of getting out of it, I just opened up the zipper and wrapped myself in it. And as I did that, I thought, this is a coat. I came back and I just cut up a coat in it. And, um, and that pattern basically is still the same pattern I use today. I never stopped making the coat since 1973. It, I, always, every year since then, sold sleeping bag coats. And when you, with all of your designs, do you, I've, you just drape, you don't sketch? Or? It depends. I mean, I, I tend to let the fabric sort of guide me or the concept guide me, or sometimes I will combine two or three patterns together to create a new silhouette. Um, but I tend to use sketches to identify what I've already done rather than start with it. But I do doodle and sort of play out shapes and, and things, but um, I, I like getting right into the fabric right away. Yeah, I read in an interview from, I think, 75, that you start your process with the textile always. Mm -hmm. Is that still the yeah, work? Yeah, yeah. And, um, and I think the, the creative process is about how things feel. Mm -hmm. So how fabric feels or print looks or, you know, just wrapping it on my body too and seeing how it moves. All of that is so tactile that um, a sketch can give you some information can provide a guideline, but feeling it is so much a part of what it's going to be like to wear it. And I think such a, an important part of all your designs is sort of comfort and being able to move. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, and I know now, I mean, well, even starting in like the 70s, there was, you did body wear and then mm -hmm. the sweatshirting. It seems like such a precursor to the athleisure trend mm -hmm. now. What got you interested in doing such movement-based cl like clothing that allowed that? Well, you know, again, there's, there's, uh, I'm, from doing this, the fashion industry moves quickly into ideas. And I think people in fashion have probably the most tuned in intuitive sense because they're constantly creating. Um, it's not like you make a film and then there's another, and it, it's like we're always, what's the feeling? What do people want? What, what are the, and then what, as a woman, what do mm -hmm. I want? So the end of the 70s, <clears throat> the early 70s was flower power, hippies, 
you know, no bras, no panties, flying around, no shaving your armpits, hair, whatever, if it's straight and wavy or whatever it is, it is. Towards the end of the decade, the realization that there's a world with gay people, that women can control their own lives, that this freedom, this spirit of freedom just came bursting out and had an impact beyond anything in New York City. And so Studio 54 seemed to be the home for all of that coming together. So people would dress to go to Studio 54, even if they knew they couldn't get in. I'm very mm -hmm. serious. Business was extraordinary because everybody was getting dressed for a big party on the weekend or even during the weekdays if there was a, an event. And so they'd get dressed up and it would include clothes you could dance in, sparkly makeup, hair, and just decorated to, to, for night, mm -hmm. for everything about the night even for the decadence of the night. So the pendulum is going to swing. And I was feeling, and, and working out was sort of just becoming an, a, a thing. And I was very much into working out and that physical stuff. And I have been for a while, but I also was in the throes of creating my swimwear collection for the next season. And as I was doing it, and I was a swimmer, a, a very obsessed swimmer, and when I got out of the pool, I would always put a sweatshirt on. And the only place you could get a sweatshirt was at the Army-Navy store. And so I thought, what a perfect cover-up. Why aren't I doing what I do? So I bought sweatshirt, gray sweatshirt mm -hmm. fabric. and. I made cover-ups, and then I thought, wouldn't this be a great top? Wouldn't this be a great skirt? Wouldn't this be a great jacket? Wouldn't this be a great pant? Wouldn't this be a great gown? And before I knew it, I had like a whole bunch of gray sweatshirt, everything from tops to gowns to coats, and it was just, I loved it. And I thought, this is bigger than me. Um, this is somebody who can really make clothes at a great price should make this. And so I was introduced to Jones Apparel, to Sidney Kimmel, and um, I wouldn't let, so Women's Wear told him that it was a really fantastic line and he had to do a deal with me. And I wouldn't let him see the collection because I didn't trust him, I didn't know, and I said, I'm just afraid this is going to get knocked off, and I'll tell you what it is, but I'm not going to show you. And so he signed the deal with me without even seeing it and trusting Women's Wear, who really pressured him and said, this is like, you're, you're going to be very happy about doing this. And so I did the collection, and the lines that were around Saks and Bloomingdale's and even here were just to get the clothes, just was blowing everybody's mind. Like, why do people want this so much? And the idea of wearing casual clothes had never been a concept before. 
I mean, you didn't wear casual clothes if it wasn't the weekend and you weren't doing a sport. So I was, again, in the right place at the right time, and it just came together. Throughout your career, you've done a, quite a few, you've done several of these um, lines with like, larger companies, mm -hmm. like with Walmart. Mm -hmm. and, um, what has your, been your experience working with these kind of, you know, often people, designers feel like they have, they lose their creativity or it's hard to get, like, the, there's issues with fit, issues with mm. product control, like, how, how has it worked for you? Well, um, I've worked with so many yeah. companies. I've worked with Japan for 28 years. I worked in Italy for eight years. I've worked, I mean, and of course with Jones for a, per a long period of time. And Walmart to me was such an incredible experience. For one, I'd never been to a Walmart. And I, had, I met this great guy um, in a conversation about doing business with his company. And he left that company and was running this very big division at Walmart. And he called me and he said, we didn't do something before, but we really need to do something together now. And I think, I, I think you're going to really like this idea. And I said, well, I'm, I've never even been to a Walmart store. I don't even know what you're talking about. And he said, you've got to come to Bentonville. So I went, and I was just like, my god. I have no idea. And I realized that there's a population in this country who never had a designer anything, mm -hmm. and why not? And I really also believe that it, expensive fabric doesn't make something more creative or doesn't, isn't better necessarily because ideas are free and they can apply to anything. And so you can make something um, out of lots of different fabrics. But because Walmart had such great negotiating power, because if I did a t-shirt for $6, well, they were doing 600,000 t-shirts. So it could be $6. So everything I did for them was under $20. And they agreed in the contract, and they held up to it, that I had final okay for fit. I provided patterns and samples that they had, that each manufacturer had to match. I chose all the manufacturers that were making, if somebody was doing suits or dresses, there were different manufacturers. Mm -hmm. And it was a great experience. It's never problem free, yeah. but the, um, Spirit was her final say is what we want. We don't want these clothes to look cheap or, and so I taught these companies that just by changing the distance of where that edge stitch is or how you finish something or the way you press something can give a, a, a look and a feel of elegance and and more value than what they were doing. And so it was really fantastic. 
I mean, when making such affordable clothes, I always feel like the issues of sustainability mm -hmm. and labor conditions come up. Were those <clears throat> things you were able to sort of have some? Well, I will tell you, Joan, um, uh, Walmart probably has the strictest sustainability program for all of their suppliers. So if I wanted a label and the distance for trucking those labels to the clothing manufacturer was too far, they would reject me getting that label. So they forced their suppliers to follow very, very strict sustainability programs that they set up. So Walmart has a reputation that really is unfair because they're so innovative about everything that has to do with compliance to the quality standards in a factory. Any factory that I was presented with had gone through scrutiny like you can't imagine. The same thing with how, where the fabric came from, how it got shipped from one place to the other, how much fuel was used. So I would sit in these meetings and companies would get big awards from Walmart and bigger orders if they were the most compliant. And if you weren't, you would lose the business. That's great to hear because it's always, whenever I see something priced very cheaply, it always makes me a little, you know, nervous. Yeah, yeah. You don't always know that yeah. um, about. Well, in made. some cases that's valid yeah. fear, but I, really was just totally impressed. And when people would say, you're working with Walmart, they're so horrible. And I'd say, whatever you know is not correct. Mm -hmm. I am intimately involved in, that, in their world. I wasn't a supplier to Walmart. I was a designer mm -hmm. for Walmart who worked with their suppliers. So I had a very intimate relationship and I was just very impressed and delighted to learn that there were so many things that could be done for sustainability that I didn't even know about. And you mentioned you, when you were just talking about them innovation, and that's one of the words I always think of in regards to you, especially within the sort of technology and fashion. And I actually came across this quote from 1983 that I thought was so great from you about the future. I see people shopping for fashion very much the way they go to the bank with their city card. You put your card into a computer and all the information goes into a fashion bank. It would save time. It would tell a buyer when a person wanted a style but the stock was missing. It would tell the store the color and the size that the person wanted to buy. So when the store's reordered, the information would be filed away for the buyer's use. I mean, that totally seems to predate what we now know mm -hmm. as e-commerce where all the sites save everyone's information. Mm -hmm. and it was very prescient. Can you just talk about at how you were so interested and involved in technology so early? I just have been, and I, I have no explanation for it, but I was thinking um, about one of my favorite movies of all time and how close I feel to futurist concepts. So Fahrenheit 451 was a huge hit in the 60s, and it was a Francois Truffaut film, a Ray Bradbury book, and 
and I think about the combination and everything that that film mm -hmm. is about. And until today, I keep thinking, how did how did they put together not only the film version of the book mm -hmm. that magnified the information in the book, but that is so relevant today, and still what they're talking about in the film is becoming real and relevant. So the idea of books disappearing is so threatening to us right mm -hmm. now that there may not be books and that people may not hold something that you read or just the, a, an incredible amount of connections like literally exercising in front of a TV or taking medication and following all of that. Mm -hmm. I mean, that film was just so incredibly thoughtful and futurist. Mm -hmm. And nothing excites me more than what can be. Um, so I'm constantly, actually I'm exploring three things right now that have nothing to do with fashion about what can be. And maybe they come to pass and maybe they won't, but the idea that I can explore an idea of something that's never existed before is very exciting to me. I feel like a lot of the things you've done over your career in fashion haven't existed before. The way you sort of incorporated video installations into the stores and also made fashion films. You were like one of the first mm -hmm. to set up a website, I think, mm -hmm. to sell. Yeah. Um, I don't even know how in the mid-90s you would even taken orders, but... Well, I was a little too ahead of doing it, but I couldn't not do it. I mean, I knew that there may be three other people that will look at my website, but I just, not to do it, mm -hmm. I'm so compulsive and I need to have it done right away kind of personality yeah. that um, not having it would have set back sort of the creative process of what can come next. So doing it then was what I needed to do to just make that a part of my life. And mm -hmm. then I could think about all the things to do with it going forward. Um, doing fashion films, to me, still feels so relevant and not part of the mainstream. But I think fashion shows are definitely challenged in their ability to really connect to what people's lives are really like. They're so abstract. Um, but I think fashion films with storylines where the clothes are embedded in the story are really the kind of entertainment we're ready for now. And so I'm hoping that there's an opportunity to sort of reweave that into um, the business we're in and, and the fashion industry. I mean, well, you shot you shot a little film on your iPhone, right, for this new collection. Yeah. I've seen films on your Instagram from the 80s. And did you shoot those? In some cases, I shot them. Um, I always had my Super 8. So, and in some cases, I would have somebody do, um, do both. Uh, it depended on what was going on. I think... Being able to tell the story beyond the garment, but tell the story on you. Like, this is how I see it. She'd sit this way. And so 
for a designer to connect directly to you now, which I can do, but to connect directly with you through the way I see it is even just, why wouldn't I want to do that? Mm -hmm. So I love that part of it, too. I mean, it sort of ties in with having this sort of total lifestyle look. I mean, you even had like a homewares line. Like, mm -hmm. it is sort of about your vision. Mm -hmm. And then the, the phone is just like an extension of it. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's, it's the storytelling, which is so important to all of us now. Storytelling sort of makes it real and makes it attainable. And, um, and I think we treasure that. So film is so great for storytelling. And, um, and I really am so inspired to use more of it. And storytelling, especially where uh, it can help women and inspire women and, and sort of empower women is, is my commitment, I think, in my lifetime to make sure I achieve that. And as a woman in the fashion industry, how have you seen the whole industry shift? Do you think it's easier for women now? Or well, I think everything for women now is going to be easier. And it's because women have decided that they are not only capable, but they're going to get it done. Mm -hmm. And so there's an incredible amount of support amongst women in different age groups, different demographics. There's, there's really an incredible desire for women to help women. And so everything is going to be easier now because we're supporting each other. And I think the more women we have in those places where decisions can be made about the workplace and about um, just whether it's in government or in healthcare or in, in just the business world at large, the, the more balanced they'll be. So we don't have to fight so much for the simple things mm -hmm. that we should just not even be talking about. So the more women that are in positions that have been traditionally only men will change everything and their the, the discussion about equal pay or simple things that are just, of course women should have this, will not even be in the con in, in context of a conversation. It'll be just, of course it is, it's because the women hopefully now from this time will rise into those positions, show their worth in those positions, and the continuity of having women in power will be a comfortable place for men and women. And has your personal um, interactions with men, like businessmen you've worked with, has that shifted? Have you seen that? You know, I think it's generational. I think young men are very healthy when it comes to their vision of women. Maybe there's still some challenges in, in their dating intimate mm -hmm. intimacies with women. I think there's still some confusion going on on how they can interact with women. I think some of it is fear. But in the workplace, um, I think my generation of men is not going to change. I think they, 
it's sort of set. So um, there are times they need to be educated and scolded or bad boy or ignored because in some cases it's just it's so generational you can't but there is an open mind to conversation a lot of men that are younger and have a much different respect for women which is so much better and I think the more secure a man is the more he respects women insecure men are dangerous they do they do silly things they do harmful things so when a man is insecure it, it's tough for them and it's tough for women so it it's still a process um, but I don't know that we can say there's been a huge change yet you I know you have interns and you've worked a lot with high school students what advice do you give them on starting their career well I think they have to understand who they are and define the kind of career they want so it's very important that young people starting out make sure that they don't want to go into the fashion industry to be famous and to make a lot of money mm -hmm. they need to decide about the fashion industry and if it is what they want and if they're willing to work as hard as you need to to be in the fashion industry and to understand what they have that they feel nobody else can offer and then to be able to sell that to other people so other people get behind them. It's a, it's a complicated time to go into the industry so you have to be, you really have to take a hard look at what your motivation is and how passionate you are about it. There may be something in another industry that is actually easier to attain mm -hmm. and can be more successful for people. So it doesn't mean if you're not going to make it in fashion, then forget it. No, you can make it in something else and be even better. Um, but you have to really have something extraordinary to offer to be in the fashion industry right now to get recognized. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks again for listening to this conversation with Norma Kamali. We have many wonderful conversations coming up in the next few weeks with fashion designers, TV producers, models, directors, and more. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode. All episode materials are available at ladyworld.tv and on our newsletter. See you next week.